you join me as we ask God to meet with us in a special way as we open this book again today. My Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of this, your law, your word, your truth. I need the principles that are here in order to be a good steward of that which you've entrusted into my care. And this dear family needs to carefully in a focused and intentional way grow in being stewards of all that you've entrusted into their care. They're so good at managing so many things. Thank you for the encouragement they've been to Elaine and to me as they're good stewards of their relationship with us. Thank you for the good steward they've been in their relationship with each other and now build on that, Father, for none of us have arrived. So open our eyes to what we need to do to strengthen our stewardship role, our role as managers of what you've given to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the third of, in this series. Someone move my chair. <laughs> Don't mess with my chair. We're in the third in this series, Faithful Steward. I've defined the terms for you in the opening uh, study, the opening message in this series. I've defined the two terms. The first one is faithful. And Pastor Tim explained it well last Lord's Day. It is this whole idea of being trustworthy. And that's the word pistos, which means to be worthy of trust as a manager of what belongs to another. But that comes from a root word, which is patho. And patho means to win the favor. And let me ask you this question. What do you think it is, thinking with me, and I know that's a stretch for some early on Sunday morning, but think with me here. What do you think it is that makes a person favorable, or let me change it. What is, what is it that makes you and me a worthy servant to the one or manager of the one who's given us what we have. It is an attitude and a mindset that above all wants to win the favor of the one who actually owns all that we have. So, here's the thing. We've learned it. God owns everything. I own nothing. nothing. So what does that mean? That means you can look at the person next to you and say, God's told me that I can borrow his car that you have the keys to today. <laughs> well, maybe not. I'm the manager of that car. I know it belongs to him, but we got to talk. God owns everything. I don't own nothing. God has entrusted, secondly, everything that, or a portion of what is his to my care. He hasn't given me everything. What he's entrusted to you, he has not entrusted to me. He's given me exactly what he wants me to have with the skill set that he has given me to manage. Thirdly, in managing it, I can increase 
or I can diminish what he has entrusted into my care. That is, I can make it more eternally valuable, a greater eternal treasure that's waiting for me when I get to heaven. And what a motivational concept that is. And then finally, at any moment, I may be called to give an account of what he has entrusted into my care. And what is it that will make him say when I come to that day that I'm giving an account of everything he's given to me, what is it on that day that will, will cause him to say, well done, worthy servant? It is this. It's this whole idea of my using it with him in view to win his favor to honor him, to glorify him, and not to lavish it on myself for personal gain. And that's why, though I may not by others be challenged of using those things he has given me in a sinful way, I still may have those works of stewardship burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Because the attitude in the use of them was all about me rather than all about him and investing them for the kingdom. And I honestly, I don't know how to draw you into this. I would that the Spirit of God would just lay hold of your heart and help you get this. It is an attitude. This thing of being a steward. It is an attitude of wanting above all else. All that I have, I want to use it in a way that pleases him. Can I park here one more second? It's not something that can be commanded. Saying be a faithful steward. It's kind of a futile statement because I can't create that attitude in you. And God commanding it can't create it really in me. It is something that when you are born into the family of God, it dawns on you at some point, I am not my own, I am bought with a price. And all that he entrusts to me from this day on is not my own, it's his. And that's an attitude that somehow has to dawn on our souls, our mind, our heart. Can you imagine having to say to a mom, by the way, I saw a great picture on Facebook this week. Get ready, there are a series of babies coming to this church this year. Do you know that? The picture shows three moms standing kind of sideways on Facebook showing the three different stages they are, all of whom are giving birth this year. Look out, nursery workers, here they come. Can you imagine having to say to any one of those precious moms, now be careful, love your babies. It's not something you command, hello? It is something that is innate within everyone who is a mother. It's the same thing with the stewardship thing. I hope I can drive this home adequately. 
It's a whole matter of attitude that says, God, forgive me for getting this, and I want to get back, or forgetting this, I want to get back to it. It's this whole idea that all the, the assets and all the affairs that you've entrusted to me as a manager, I want to use them to please you. You get it? It's an attitude more than it is an action. I want that, Father. Now, Pastor Tim, as I said, I've told a number of people, I think, hit it out of the ballpark last week. He talked to us about being managers of, in a way that honors God and wants to please Him, managers of our family or familial relationships. Dads, husbands, you have relationships with wife and children. Mom, wives, you have relationships with children and father. Children, you have relationships with each other and with mom and dad. And there are ways to manage those if you're interested, if you have a heart to. There are ways to manage those to win the favor of the one who has given you those relationships. And it's important, no matter how great those relationships are or how difficult those relationships are, it is very, very, very important that we be managers of those relationships in the way that pleases the Father for the goal of pleasing Him. Now, I picked on Elaine an awful lot the last two Sundays. I've not said a word about it. Say, way to go, Larry. Stop picking on me. No, don't. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if people think we've developed this wonderful relationship that we have, uh, have developed over these years without any difficulty at all. Oh, no. She has to live with moi. And I have to learn how to win the favor of God in living with her. Do you know that God, by the way, there are no such thing, things as um, relationships that are compatible. What's the central letter in the word sin? I. What are two married people? Two sinners, hopefully saved by grace, but still two sinners. They are not compatible. It doesn't work that way. She is so hard to live with. <laughs> you knew that was coming, right? I'm so hard to live with. So are you. The question isn't, is it difficult? The question is, what kind of a manager of the relationship am I? Am I one that wants to win the favor of God in that relationship? And the same thing is true with our children. The same thing is true with our church relationship, which is what I want to move you toward today. You are not just stewards of family relationships. You are stewards of a spiritual family relationship. And today I'm focusing primarily on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just five verses, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 2. I'm going to read them with you in just one second. But I want to set it up for you. This is just a passage in which the Apostle Paul is addressing a relationship problem. 
a stewardship problem, a managerial problem in the church at Corinth. You are mishandling, he says to the church at Corinth, your relationship with spiritual leaders that I have given you. They are stewards of the church and you are stewards of a relationship with them. Thus, the title, Stewards of Stewards. It's a great time to do that. For the first time, your pastoral search team chairman has come to you and said, it's in the works. We are pursuing this next perfect leader. Oh, maybe he didn't say that. There's no such thing as a perfect or even ideal. For every relationship, just like in your home, on this earth, every relationship is a relationship with another sinner. Somebody ought to be saying, yo. Right? And so Paul says, sinners, I got a problem with the way you're relating to other sinners who are leading you. Now, I know you're all spiritual, but he's also saying to this church, you need help in strengthening this relationship. And that's what he's addressing in these five verses. Please, look at them with me. Let no one boast in men. The word there can be said or translated sinners. Let no one boast in sinful relationships or sinful men. For all things are yours. Class, where did all things come from? God. So all things are yours. Whether, and he begins to name some of those relationships. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present, or things to come. All are yours. Now watch this. And you are Christ, and Christ was a steward. Christ received all that he received from, when he came into this world, from God. Christ is God's. Now you still with me? Now, follow on the heels of that, what he says, it begins the fourth chapter, which really is a part of the same paragraph that started at the end of the third chapter. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, and here's our word, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found, here's our word, faithful. Pistachus worthy of trust as a manager of all that is yours given from above. Now let's break it down this way. A stewardship problem is addressed by Paul in these five verses. The stewardship problem is understood when you hear the challenge he gives them. Let no one boast in men. Watch this. It's a problem of sectarian pride that Paul is addressing in the church. And it simply means this. Some people say, I 
and those who are product of the same one that I am a spiritual product of am superior to the others because I am a spiritual product of Paul. Another said, and they all had relationships, differing relationships with these men, and they all were familiar with these spiritual leaders. Another said, I am a product of a spiritual product of the ministry of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and yet another, and listen carefully, this is the worst of all. I am a product of the relationship I have with Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Was the spirit of Christ to walk around and say to people around, I'm the greatest of all? Or was the spirit that he modeled saying, I'm the servant of all? Which is the greatest. And yet his followers were among the first to say, I'm the greatest. For I heard the gospel directly from Christ. And I believed when I heard him. I was there on the day of Pentecost. And I was there before that when Christ walked on this earth. It's like, oh my goodness. Christ makes you superior to others? You don't get his heart, what it is to be a Christian follower of Christ. Now, all of you will say, well, we don't do that. And I would say, initially, a cursory reading of this, that was a problem unique to the Corinthian church. But wait a minute, not so. I hope you're hearing this. Church, we do this this sectarian pride thing denominationally in this Western culture. Don't we? Do you know how many brands of Baptists there are? Like 10,247, I think. A new one every year, because Baptists can't get along. Watch this. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I was nearly disciplined in the church for going to a Baptist Bible Fellowship college. And then I served in a Baptist Bible Fellowship church, like one you are part of as independent Baptists. And then I went, heaven forbid, and served for most of our ministry in General Association, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, I always joke and say, and as opposed to irregular Baptist, whatever that's supposed to mean. And then we merged with a local church that was a part of Converge, which was the former General Baptist Conference. And then we had the audacity to go in between years of ministry uh, and join a non-denominational church at root, it had Baptist roots and Baptist theology, and there's no distinction in, in the theology. Now, we were a part of five different, in the last 45 years, five different Baptist groups that are theologically, conservatively sound, believe in the gospel and the word of God. But each of them thought they were superior to the other. And each time I made a switch, can I tell you, I lost relationships with people who said, you can't do that. 
Because this denomination that you're leaving is superior to the one you're going to. And I got very familiar with all five of those denominations within the Baptist denomination. You know what I discovered? They all have their strengths and they all have their weaknesses. And there's some very godly people in every one of them whom God used to build into my life to make me the specimen I am today. <laughs> you get where I'm coming from? When you and I get to heaven, it's not because we're Baptists that we get to enter. It is not a denominational issue, and there is no special building for each Baptist sect or any other denomination. Paul is making it un mistakably clear. Let no man boast in men and relationships that men build. Well, let me make it more personal than that so you get where I'm coming from. I know personally what I'm talking about because of what went on in my own heart. I came out of Bible college in the years when one of the most, in my view, destructive books in all the world, in all of Christendom, ever came out. I don't usually mention names like this critically, and he did it with the right motive, I have no doubt about that, but it was by Elmer Towns. You ever heard of that name? And the book, The Ten Largest Sunday Schools in the and from that book came the names of ten men, pastors, who were unduly exalted as unintentionally by the book and author, but unduly exalted as bigger-than-life people. And so church leaders, and especially us pastors, began to go to those ten men and begin to ask questions. What do I do to become like you? Wrong question. What do I do to become more like my master? That created a heart in me that spilled over as a young man into the church that I ministered in. And I began to ask, what do I do to become like my mentor? The guy who could build a church from zero to 700 faster than anyone else I knew in America at that point. I served with him and learned from him, but I left that church to pastor, and in my heart, unwittingly but powerfully ruling, was this question, what do I do to be like him? And in the Christian world, we move from a mindset to say, let's try it out on Mikey. Remember that commercial? Let's see if he likes the food and use him as our servant. To a generation that's mine that says, let's be like Mike. <laughs> that now says, I want to be like this bigger than life person. And one day, not many years ago, God did a marvelous thing for me. My mentor that for decades I wanted to be like failed me miserably. And 
when he undermined, and he's, it's not that he failed the church, not that kind of thing, but he did fail me miserably. And when that occurred, it finally got through to my head and heart. This thing of being a steward of the church is not about being like men we respect. Nothing wrong with following godly examples as long as the godly examples have the ultimate goal and make it clear. Please don't look at me. Look at Christ. And that's what Paul's addressing in this church. This country in its Christian world needs to hear it because it's gotten worse, not better. Now there are names out there like MacArthur and Hybels and McDonald and Stanley and all these bigger-than-life people, and I'm scared to death that many of the younger, like I was when I came out of school, I want to be like them. No, no, a thousand times no, that was a problem in this church at First Corinthians, at the, at the city of Corinth. Paul had to address it. In fact, it's the first problem he addressed out of all of them that he had to address in this book. It's the most critical one. Don't have a wrong view of men. Maybe I could stop here and say, and don't get excited, I'm not stopping here. But maybe I could stop here and say, oh, beloved, don't do that to your next pastor servant leader that's coming. Don't make him a bigger than life guy. Encourage him and be a good steward of your relationship with him by doing everything you can, investing in every way possible to encourage him to make his goal to please the master, the owner of this church, to become like him thus be a model for us. Hello? That's huge. So that's what Paul's dealing with here. Now he gives a solution to the problem. I love this. God never talks about problems without presenting a solution. And the men whom he calls, whom he genuinely calls, are always men who are solution-oriented. I could take you through the book of Acts and show you the early leaders were exactly that. I've never known a servant of God who was pursuing Christ-likeness who wasn't after solutions. And so there's a problem in the church. What do I want you to do about this problem of sectarian pride, of making men bigger than life? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to let a man consider us and then we'll define it later. Here's how I want you to consider us. Leaders of the church. And Paul put himself in that category. We are managers of the church. And here's how I want you to watch it. Think about us. The solution to this problem. And let me make a broad statement that you may think is hyperbole overstating it. But it's not. It's a solution to every problem within the body of Christ change the way you think. That's what Paul says in this text. Let a man consider. You can't consider without a brain. You've got to think about it. 
Is not God after changing the way we think? That's a question, church. Join me in the answer. Yes. Is not God after the way we think? Big time. In that great passage, I've taught it in small groups, and before I leave, I've got to teach it to the whole church. But Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24 talks about putting off the flesh and putting on the spirit of Christ, which is true righteousness and holiness. So put off the flesh, put on the spirit. And in between the two verses, 22 and 24, he tells us how to do it. By renewing the mind. Mind. Changing the way we think. Change the way you think about the spiritual leaders that you are making bigger than life. Because Paul is about to, in a holy way, bring them down off the pedestal where they don't belong. And frankly, I've never heard a message on this subject in my 45 years of ministry. Because pastors are afraid of being brought down off pedestals where they don't belong. You are not a good steward to put them there and make them bigger than life. There's only one on that stool, on that throne, and all who cared who said. So Paul says, let me bring you down by changing the way you think about these giants of the faith. Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and even Christ. You've got to see what we are. And he brings them down off the pedestal and he says, first of all, consider this, think this. We are servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. I wish I had time to park there. The word servant literally just means we are slaves. And nobody puts a slave on a pedestal. We're slaves. Put the owner of us, the master of us on that pedestal. Bring us down in your head. We're slaves. We're servants of Christ. Now, is it not an exalted position to be a servant of the Lord Jesus? But it's not Christ's position. It's not bigger than life. It's simply positions that between death, Paul talked about in the context, between birth and death, they are stewards in time. Servants of the Lord Jesus. Let me pause here. As opposed to servants of men. Your next pastor is not a servant of men. He's a servant of Christ who is given the responsibility to shepherd men. Churches forget that. You know what I've learned over 45 years? I think I shared this with you once before, but it's worth you hanging on to. Some members I've watched over the years expect a pastor to have all the answers. To know everything. I have a question, Pastor. And, oh, could I talk about some questions <laughs> that people have. I don't mean to make light of them. I'm just, some of them are so complex. And it's like, uh, 
I've learned to say, I have no idea, but I know where to go to find it. Let's look together. That's not good enough for some people in churches over the years. They expect the answer. I hate the game Bible trivia. I'm supposed to know who Noah's father's father's brother's uncle was. I don't know, and I don't know that it would help you if I did. Last time I checked, only God is omniscient and knows everything. Some people expect pastors to be there on the spot when they need them. Learn that. Watch that. They don't get it that in a church like this, and even smaller than this, there are three people who need him to be there all at the same time. Boy, some people get disappointed, and I've watched some leave because he wasn't there when they thought he should be. Trying to help you by preparing for your next pastor, just to remind you, last time I checked, only God is omnipresent everywhere, all at the same time. And then there's this whole uh, power thing. It's like, I'm talking to you today, Pastor, because I need you to make something happen for me. Which sometimes is the exact opposite of what somebody else in the church wants to be made to happen. Talk about getting caught in the middle. Pastors, have fun with that. I've learned last time I checked, only God is omnipotent and can make anything he chooses happen. No, no, no. We are not your omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent servants. We're servants of Christ. We have to please him. We have to win his favor. Do you follow? Does that help prepare for the next guy? Good reminder. I've watched churches drive young men out of the ministry, and I don't know what age your next pastor will be. By the way, I heard a rumor. Could I just dispel it? Elaine's going like this, Larry. Be careful. Make sure this isn't a verse 22 thing you're about to say, a fleshly thing. It's not. Somebody said, they're looking for a pastor right out of Bible college. It's like, where did that come from? No, no, no. We're looking for a pastor who has the maturity, whether he's 35 or 85, who has the maturity to know I cannot be all the people expect me to be. And I'm not even trying to be. I'm trying to be the kind of servant that has as his model Christ. And I'm trying just to grow toward that, knowing I'll never reach it. And I won't let anybody else expect me to reach it. Does that make sense? A servant of Christ. I had so much more, as opposed to servants of people. Verse, verse 1, then chapter 4 goes on to say, Consider us, change the way you think. 
consider us as stewards of the mysteries of God. And here's how he defines those mysteries, those secret things of God. He defines them first this way. As we are God's fellow workers. And watch the flow of this and you'll understand what mysteries are in the end. We're stewards of God's mysteries as his fellow workers. Fellow means, watch it, companion, not competitors. You have made church at Corinth, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ competitors. I'm telling you, we are companions in this work, in this mystery of God. Well, what is this mysterious work that you do? It's a very simple thing. He describes it in two uh, allegorical terms. First of all, as a field. You are God's field. We are fellow servants given the stewardship of, we're companions, not competitors, giving the stewardship of working in God's field. But I learned something this week, and it's phenomenal to me. Paul in this word field was really blasting that church at Corinth. It's amazing to me. You see yourselves as superior spiritually because of who your leaders are. And he says, you're not, you're a field. Well, how's that blasting? Watch this. This is the only place this word field is used in the entire New Testament. Georgion is the word used nowhere else. It's talking about a field that is cultivated for a purpose. All the other terms for field talk about fruit that has been produced from the cultivated field. And by using Georgion, the Apostle Paul is saying to them, listen up, church. You see yourselves as this great harvest, this great productive spiritual church. I want to tell you, you haven't even begun to produce fruit. You're a Georgion. And God sent us to take what he has turned over, the soil, the dirt that he's turned over, and just to begin to plant the kind of seed that will produce ultimately fruit. You are not what you think you are. This is the mystery. Your view. By the way, I don't see this church as that, so don't think that Larry is trying to blast us like Paul blasted the first Corinthian church. But I sure see this. Larry hasn't arrived yet. Oh, you can be more enthusiastic than that. Larry hasn't produced all the fruit he should yet. True. Amen. Yo. And neither have you. None of us has. There's much more to be done in this city and here. God has so much in store for you. And that's what these, not competitors, companions are doing. They are working together so that God can produce what he wants to produce in you. And then he adds to it, you are God's building. And again, it's not the completed structure. It's barely the foundation laid. And God 
has given you an opportunity to manage between your life and your death. In your relationship with his companion fellow workers here, he's given you an opportunity to be stewards of those stewards that are his companions in building the work. Yo? Your turn. So, Ephesians 4 makes it clear. All God's servants are gifts that he has entrusted into your care to manage, to have a godly relationship with. Stay with it. Ephesians 4, when Christ left, he ascended on high and he left gifts for the church. What are those gifts? Those gifts are apostles and prophets, Ephesians 4. Evangelists, which is not like itinerant preachers. They are more like missionaries and pastor teachers. They're gifts who are his fellow workers in the mystery of God. By the way, the mystery isn't the gospel. They just flashed by it on the screen. The mystery is the church. He is building the church through those gifts that he has given. Listen, when your next pastor comes, it's a great time to say it on the day when you got your first report from Eric. When your next pastor comes, I would to God I could jump in your head the day he shows up and you say, thanks, Father, for my gift. Perfect as he is and will be. He's from you. From God above. Forty-five years ago, this last Christmas Eve, I gave to my wife a ring. I tied it on a bow to a bottle of perfume, put it back in its box, wrapped it up, and gave it to her for a Christmas present. And that's the day she got her ring and we were officially engaged. She took that ring and went home, took it off, put it on the shelf. Now, in her drawer on the back side of all the clothing in that drawer, shut the drawer and went to work the next day and said nothing to no one. Do you believe that? No, she had the catch of the world. <laughs> she went to work the next day. And went, Look what I got, a gift that says something powerful. You're going to get a gift from God. When he walks in these doors and for all the years later, when those gifts, she got a gift that that ring represents a relationship with me that lasts a lifetime. And with all the difficulties of that relationship, neither one of us have ever once forgotten this is a gift from God. And the same thing is true 
I think it's more like a marriage than it is like a calling of a pastor. You're accepting a gift that comes from God. Be very, very careful how you treat it. Treat that gift as a wonderful thing from above given to you to manage the relationship in an encouraging, godly way so that you win the favor of God. I could take you to a verse that says, it will not be good for you in the end if you don't manage this relationship well because he is going to have a special place at the judgment where he's going to talk about the people he shepherded. And by the way, same thing true of an interim pastor. I get to talk to God about all the wonderful things you have done to build this relationship you have with Elaine and me. And if I can't give a good report, and your pastors can't, that, my beloved, in the end will not be good for you. And a great motivation and challenge. Treat the gift as from God and manage that relationship and gift well. One more word and then we'll wrap it up. Verse 22 of chapter 3 we didn't address says, All that is and is to come is yours to enjoy. That's a figure of speech that most of us not being familiar with the first century culture and language don't get. All that is and is to come. Well, what's now and what will be then? But it's a figure of speech which means and all that's in between. Anything and everything. All the assets and affairs that God allows for you to have in your lifetime. All of that is yours to enjoy. God knows the best way to enjoy them is to manage them in the way that pleases him. And to that I can add on the basis of what we just said in Ephesians 4 about the gift. So, all leaders are God's gift to his church to learn to enjoy. They all are. I talk mostly about your next pastor. I want to caution you and encourage you and challenge you as a guy on his way out. Do the same with your current spiritual leaders who are God's gifts to you. The whole leadership team, the pastors and deacons, all of them are part of a companion, not competitive team that God has entrusted into your care to manage well, be a good steward of. Good challenge. Stand with me, please. We're not going to sing. Uh, not going to ask you to come forward because most of what I've shared today is not a matter of doing in obedience and coming and saying, I'm going to do that. It's a matter of asking God for an attitude to go back to where we started. I'm simply going to ask you in a closing prayer with me in a moment just to say, God, 
be changing my attitude and improving it toward everything you've given me to manage, and especially today toward the pastors that are current and future gifts from God to this church, to me. Help me to grow in my attitude toward them. As imperfect as they are, help me to manage my attitude well. Good prayer. I can't let you go without saying to those who may be here who don't understand anything about these, this managing thing called stewardship. You don't understand that what you have, my friend, is life itself that God is giving you. You don't own it. He does. He gave it to you. And he so wants to build a relationship with you now that will last in eternity. He doesn't want you to manage it without him. In fact, if you haven't learned it yet, you will quickly. I don't do so good managing my life without God. You may be here understanding that today in a special way. and You might want to breathe a prayer with every head and heart bowed that says something like this. I want to join me in this prayer. It's, God, my life is a mess today. For the first time, I've begun to understand it's a mess because I've not lived it to win your favor. Forgive me. And give me a forever relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ who bought me with his own blood on the cross. Make me yours. To that prayer, my Father, we add this. Be changing my thinking about all the relationships and gifts and things you've entrusted into my care. Make me think differently as I walk from this place in Jesus' name. And all who care to said, Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.